Well, last hour, we were and are looking at why this whole area of worldview, why this course is important, and why the Bible, basically, is important, and the relationship to history, uh, primarily, these first three things, it's tied to history, the Bible is. And generally, you might say the Bible is based on history, but in reality, history is based on the Bible. The secularists are not aware of that. They're just assuming that one thing is just happening, like Linda said, like marbles on a table that are just rolling randomly with no no purpose, no direction. But as our philosophy of history from Acts chapter 17 indicates, and that's just from that one passage, by the way. You can pick up other elements of a philosophy of history from other passages, and from what that indicates is that there is a plan, and that God is orchestrating a plan, and he reveals that plan to us in his word. And the nice thing about that plan is God has told us where everything is headed, not in perhaps as much detail as we'd like, and not all the specifics, but we know where history is headed, so we can plan accordingly. So, this whole area is important because of the world we live in. Secondly, because of the Bible and history and that close tie and that relationship. Thirdly, what we have predominantly in the Bible is what we would describe as narrative literature. Now, there's other kinds of literature in Scripture, but the narrative... The story of the Bible is the foundation of everything else. All of the other genres are based on the narrative, and it's like God's story, like I mentioned earlier. So narrative literature is most common you find in the Bible, and in Scripture we have what's called historical narrative. Not just narrative in general, but historical. These are historical events. This is God's view of history, God's view of these events. And narrative material, one of the characteristics is that it's selective. Narrative literature is selective. And we saw that from the John 20 passage. John said we could write hundreds of books, couldn't contain all that what Jesus did. He selected these particular events, these particular miracles, selectively because he had a purpose that you may believe in Jesus Christ. That's the nature of all of narrative. It's selective. And what we have in the Bible is selective events to give us a picture of the the God of the Bible, and enough, in other words, it's adequate, such that we have everything that we need for life and godliness, what Peter writes. So narrative is selective. What is narrative? It's the presentation of history or events in story form. And you can look at the Bible as a larger, or you might even describe it as a meta-narrative, a larger narrative. Story, with lots of individual stories. And narrative is designed to give you a sense of being there. It's one of the characteristics. So when you read the Bible, put yourself into the story. Observe what's going on. Try to experience the same things that the major characters are experiencing. We'll do that as we read these different events. So it's important because it's narrative literature, and this narrative literature is the framework for all history. 
I mentioned there's what's called observational science. And what we mean by observational science, these are observations that are made in the present, and you formulate concepts or ideas from those observations. There's also what's called historical science. This is what historians do, and we'll touch on historical science as well, because we're going to be dealing with events that took place in the past, and we're going to want to reconstruct them, and we'll deal with a lot of this in our apologetic portion when we deal with some of these events. Historical science has some characteristics to it. In fact, all of history does. Historical science deals with what are called traces of the past. Traces of the past. That's an example of a trace of the past. In other words, you find a fossil that tells you that something happened to whatever this thing is, this fossil. But you can even view even the life of Abraham Lincoln. You can't go back and talk to him, for example. But we have traces from the past that tell us something about him. And the most reliable traces are written documents. Eyewitness reports. Those are your most reliable documents. But even those, you have to have a reliable recorder of those events. So history, because you can't reconstruct events, but you can go back and do an adequate job when you study these traces... The reason I'm giving you this is because this is the, the problem that you have with secular history. I want you to understand the problem that the secular historian has, which is different from the problem we have. We have a similar problem, but we have an advantage. Okay? So history deals with data. That data are those traces that are left by events or series of events. Historical data are the traces left by the events. So the better the traces, the better you're in a position to reconstruct what happened. And things like Abraham Lincoln or things that are recorded in time, if you have enough reliable documents, you can reconstruct what took place in their life or uh, reconstruct events. Now, we're going to deal with events, like Linda is alluding to, that are prehistory, prehistorical. No one was there to see how that fossil formed. No one was there to see how those rock layers were laid down. We're going to talk about that. Those are historical events or records, traces of events that we're going to look at. And there's all kinds of theories. The seculars have theirs. We have an advantage. So historical data deals with these traces left by an event. This is what a historical fact is by definition. Not mine. This is what historians, in terms of understanding history, a historical fact is what? Has data, but what else? And that's what's very important. Yes, very good, very good, Connie. A historical fact is these pieces of data, these traces left by an event, Plus interpretation, because you can't recreate the event. You can't go back in a time machine until somebody invents one. Somebody can go back and invent a time machine and go back in time and observe what happened. can't do that. All you have available is the data or these traces, but now you need to put together this data and you interpret it. That's true of all history, whether it's Abraham Lincoln or 9-11. 
all historical events include the data plus the interpretation. Postmodernism is reconstructing history, reinterpreting it. That's our advantage. That's our advantage. We have a more reliable source for the data, and in most cases we have an interpretation of the data as well. That is our advantage. The secularist doesn't have. Yes? Postmodernism almost denies reality. The emphasis of most postmodernism is trying to deal with oppressed groups and reconstructing history from their perspective, denying actually reality of knowledge even in some cases, extreme cases. Well, in literature, it's not so much what's written down, but what it means to you. That's postmodernism, which goes contrary to understanding reality. Now, just to contrast what science is able to do and what science is all about with history, because we're going to deal with both. Science is done in the present, while in history it deals with past. Now, you can apply scientific principle in reconstructing the past, and that's what I'm talking about here, but it takes interpretation. And all interpretation starts with assumptions, and that's where the secularist goes wrong. And our assumptions is that there is a God and that God has revealed himself. Science, you have to be able to repeat experiments so it's repeatable. Historical events are unique. They only happen once. There might be things that are similar, but events themselves are only one event in history. Science, you can make observations in the present, but history is highly dependent on interpretation of data. Science attempts to be more objective. History cannot escape subjectivity because of the interpretive aspect. And this is the bottom line. God asks Job the question in Job 38.4, when Job is probing theological, certainly personal issues, God lays out for him a lot of science in Job. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? In other words, you weren't there, so you don't have any clue as to what happened. You are utterly dependent on origins, if you will, on revelation. You're utterly dependent on revelation. And that's what we have. We trust it and we look to it. Secularist does not have any of that. That's why he goes wrong in even his history. And I'm going to give you kind of an overview of history. Go ahead. Yeah, but it's backwards, yeah. Okay, kind of the last things here. We're going to look at world history, and we're going to look at the inspired version. Now, let me contrast it here, kind of in concluding our introduction here. We will begin with eternity past, and we won't get to eternity future, but if you take the New Testament portion, there's an eternity future. And we will begin with creation. That's the beginning. Now let's contrast that with a secular history. And you can find these early historical events in almost any world history book. Some of them are omitted, but... According to secular history, first Homo sapiens appeared in Africa about 100,000 years ago. 
Now, when writers of world history write, they primarily write in relationship to man, obviously, because of events relating to man. But they would also say that there's a prior history of the earth, and geologists try to reconstruct that. And I'm not giving you that on this chart. So we have a timeline here, about 100,000, and it'll vary from textbook to textbook. First Homo sapiens, about 40,000 B.C., this is 100,000 B.C., 40,000 B.C., in that time frame, Homo sapiens not only evolved further, but ended up in Europe. In fact, there's a prior evolutionary stage of proto-man, I guess you could say. This varies quite a bit, but they would put the Ice Age begins in about after 40,000 B.C., 40,000. Homo sapiens reached America. These are what we would call the American Indians, about 20,000. This is secular history. And remember, this is all constructed based on meager data. Obviously, none of it is written, and most of it is, is basically theory, and it's highly interpreted. It's based on secular anthropology, basically. So the Ice Age ends at about, what's that, about 10,000? First civilization after 10,000? First civilization. Now, as we move, you have more data, but it's still interpretive. And if we continue our little timeline here, and I put the biblical events here with the most conservative timeline, time frame, even biblical scholars will debate some of these to some extent. So we have first irrigation, first cities, about 5,000. The Sumerians, where we have actually written documents, some of the first written documents amongst the Sumerians. And secular scientists place the Sumerians about 3,500. BC. I just think it's funny how we have written documents Ooh. <laughs> after the creation. <laughs> <Before> Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> but before the flood. Before the flood. And we're going to talk about if there was a real flood as described in the Bible, then you can't have civilizations until after the flood. <laughs> well, they, they were destroyed. They were wiped out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Good point. Sumerians, Egyptians, they would date that before 3000 BC, first dynasty. Minoans, a little bit after that. What is that? 2800 BC, somewhere in there. Great pyramids of Khufu, 2500. Chinese culture, what's that? 2100, somewhere in there. The Assyrian Empire, about 2000. Now, we're getting close to Abraham's time here, in the 2000 time frame there. Babylonian Empire, Hammurabi. Now, we're getting a little more accurate in terms of the time frame here. Everything before that is pretty speculative. Phoenician alphabet, about a 1,000, which we might not disagree with that in our worldview. Greek alphabet, shortly after. World religions. This is going to be an interesting thing that we'll look at during the ex during the exile. Interesting. Yeah. What happened? Charlie Clough's got some theory on that. And obviously the Roman Empire. That's first century there. So that's secular history. So where does the Tower of Babel history come out? I put it 
no sooner than a hundred years after the flood. We'll talk about that. That's one of the events. We'll look at that a bit. Yeah. Yeah, so basically cultures have to come, most cultures have to come after the Tower of Babel, too. Good comment. So that's our introduction. Let me give you a quick overview of the major events, and these aren't all ten of them. I think I left two of them off here. We'll look at the creation. An event probably that is as significant as any of the others is what? Fall. Totally overlooked by secular historians. And another important event is the Genesis Flood. There's the scattering. I've come up with one word to describe all of these. The scattering or Tower of Babel. Abraham and a very important covenant that we'll spend a lot of time on. That covenant of Abraham sets the parameters for the rest of world history after Abraham, some of which has not even been fulfilled to this day. And this is just the Genesis chronology. We'll look at this. Don't try and copy that. We'll talk a lot about that later. So we have the Exodus. Now, I left off the conquest, so if you want to just put in the conquest in there. We'll talk about the conquest as a major event as well. And I left off the law, or law, the giving of the law at Sinai, so we'll look at that. But we'll look at the kingdom, and what God initiates in the kingdom, every characteristic of the kingdom, except for some of the sin aspects of it, God's going to institute in the final kingdom, millennial kingdom. So we're going to learn a lot about the millennial kingdom. And there's a lot of confusion about what the kingdom is in the time of Christ and what the relationship of the church to the kingdom. If you understand this kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament, it'll clarify a lot of that misconceptions. And then we have a, the, the kingdom degenerates and collapses, and then we have a return, and the return is primarily to prepare, prepare the world for the most important event of world history, incarnation. And I've got five major events related to the coming of Messiah that I don't have on this chart. But the church age or the church is an important historical entity or cluster of events. Second coming, very important. Everything changes. We have the process of restoration almost beginning to be completed. And then we have a thousand-year millennium. That's why it's called a millennium, millennial kingdom. Those are your major events from eternity to eternity. We're going to look at the Old Testament events. And again, I'll say it again, I'll challenge you. You can come up with a world history event from the secular perspective more important than any one of these. Let me know. I don't think it exists. Yes, I don't think so. I put that with the kingdom. It's basically the collapse of the kingdom. Uh, there's a lot of events that we could put in there, but we'll talk about it when we talk about the collapse of the kingdom. Another way of looking at it, each of these events is foundational to everything that follows. So if you get the creation wrong, and that's what secular science, everything else gets messed up. Okay, So it's like the foundation at the bottom. Now, you should probably put God at the bottom of all that. He's the ultimate foundation. But in terms of events, creation, and you can't understand the fall without understanding the creation, and the fall stems from the creation, and you can't understand the rest of world history without understanding the fall. 
And the flood is simply God judging the sin that comes as a result of the fall. And from that, we have nations coming about, so the scattering, the origins of the nations. And then God selects a particular nation to work through Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. And that nation is Israel. And Israel finds its high point in the kingdom that anticipates the coming of the king. And when the king comes, the kingdom is supposed to come with the king. So that's the foundation for the coming of Messiah, who is the king. And a major theme of the teaching of Messiah is the kingdom. But what happened to the Messiah? Messiah was rejected, and the church is a mystery. It's not revealed in the Old Testament. It has kind of a parenthetical role until the Messiah returns, and when he returns, he's going to establish the kingdom. Now, I didn't put any more here because we're going to stop basically with the kingdom, but we can't leave off Messiah because that's that's what is anticipated throughout all of the Old Testament. So that's your introduction. The sovereign of all history is worthy of our total worship. Well, that is our introduction to the course, and now we want to look at the first major event. This will take the rest of today and the rest of next week as well, and spill over into the next week after that, because we want to lay a good foundation too. First event foundation. So we'll look at Genesis 1 today. What I'm going to do also, I mentioned that the ultimate foundation is God, and I hope I stressed that if you don't have a sound concept of God, then everything else gets distorted. So what I'll do at each of these is begin by describing who the God of the Bible is from what the Bible teaches concerning himself. So what I want to start off with is a concept that is, I think, somewhat overlooked by the church. But the concept that oftentimes is overlooked is what's called the incomprehensibility of God. And I think that kind of gives us a good start in understanding who God is. And what I mean by the incomprehensibility of God is that God cannot be known... Man cannot discover who God is on his own. So you can't use philosophy to try to think your way to an understanding of God. You'll always end up with a distorted view. You cannot understand God through any scientific method or approach because God is outside of the natural realm. So he is incomprehensible. Now, I'm going to only give you a few verses But let me just give you a few verses that kind of support this idea, and I'll just give you quickly a few comments. Job 11 begins the discussion in verse 7. God asked Job, can you discover the depths of God? What is the implied answer to that question? Absolutely not. So you can't discover the depths of God. You can't talk about discovery. We're not, we're talking about making an investigation a search, and you can't discover the depths of God because he's incomprehensible. 
The second question, can you discover the limits of the Almighty? What's the implied answer to that question? Absolutely not. And no matter how well you can analyze the universe, the Almighty goes beyond the universe, and we haven't even been able to explore the limits of the universe, much less God himself. So, we can't discover the limits of God. I've also mentioned that I don't think that even when we go to be with the Lord in eternity, in heaven, we will not even then exhaust the understanding available in terms of who God is. And the reason for that is because he is infinite. That's one of his attributes. We'll look at that attribute on another occasion. And mankind is finite, and we will always be finite. We will never be infinite. That would be taking on an attribute of God. And in our finiteness, we we will never be omniscient. In other words, we will not know all things. I think we'll spend eternity discovering and learning, but we will never exhaust all that there is to know. And particularly, we will not discover the limits of the Almighty. Otherwise, we would be omniscient, taking on another attribute that only is reserved to God. And we're finite. Marcy? Very good. Very good. There aren't even words describe God and words to describe him are still short. Way short. Yep, exactly. So, that speaks of the incomprehensibility of God, Mark? Well, I would say that the implication, though, that we may be able to breadth, depth, the height of God, something of... implies that maybe it's possible. Well, I would say that we would know much about God and we'll spend eternity learning more about him, but we'll never exhaust him. We'll never discover the limits. That's the incomprehensibility. Romans 11, Paul, 33-36. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. In other words, it is deep. And he's he's worshiping, he's praising the deepness of it. How unsearchable are his judgments. In other words, you can't get to the bottom of them. You can't get to the depth of them. They're unsearchable. That's what we mean by incomprehensibility. Are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. We'll never fully comprehend all that God does. Because he's incomprehensible. Matthew, this is Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty seven. No one knows the Son except the Father, because the Son is incomprehensible. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. Similarly, we can't understand the Father. And anyone, and this is the key, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So that leads us to a second concept, his knowability. When we say God is incomprehensible, that does not mean that he is not knowable. He is knowable. Both are true. When we say God is incomprehensible, we will never know everything about him, and we cannot discover God by any means apart from what Jesus says through revelation. And that's the key. So this is the key. We cannot and... What I 
went into great detail on is every attempt by any philosopher or any theorist or any thinker or any person to try to get to know God apart from revelation, it always falls short. And what we do is we create a God in our own image or a God that we desire. But it's never the true God of the Bible. And that's why we have religion. That's why we have all of these differences of understanding as who God is. Is because God, first of all, is incomprehensible. And to the degree that you depart from that revelation, to that degree you have a distorted God. And hence idolatry. Very good. Exactly. So, just real quickly, the knowability of God. One passage from the Old Testament, special revelation. In other words, God has revealed himself in a special way through his prophets. In this case, Moses, Deuteronomy 4.35. God is speaking through Moses, and God is saying to you, it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God. So God is knowable, but it comes through this showing or this revelation. God demonstrated himself to Israel. And the verse goes on, there is no other besides him. In other words, he is the only true God, and he comes only to those that God shows himself. And he has chosen to show himself through Israel, and he desired to show the nations who he was through the nation of Israel. And through scripture, because they were the ones that wrote scripture. There's different forms Romans 1 tells us that God reveals himself in a general way or general revelation to every individual, every person that has ever lived. We'll come back to that verse and look at it later. But general revelation, God revealed himself. Through science, you can discover something of God, but it's always incomplete. You require special revelation to have a true, undistorted biblical picture of who God is. Romans 1 says that God has revealed himself, his eternal power, his, uh, how is the phrase? Yeah, so that man is without excuse. Very good. So, special revelation, this, this is scripture. And thirdly, through primarily Jesus Christ. And here's an interesting passage, John 1.18. No man has seen God at any time. Because he's invisible, because he's spirit. The only begotten God, in other words, this is Jesus. Jesus is the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. That's Jesus. He, and in this context is talking about Jesus as the Word, He has explained Him. And those of you that were in the class, what does explained mean? What's the word there? Exegeted Him. Exegeomai. He has exegeted God. In other words, He is brought that depth of understanding to the surface so that we may be able to understand something of who God is. And Jesus also said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So he is a manifestation of God. Jesus Christ explains God so that we might know him. We know him in a personal and also in an objective, biblical way as the Bible describes him. So that's where we begin our discussion of who God is. We begin with his incomprehensibility, but his knowability, and Genesis 1 begins to reveal to us this God. And we'll talk a little bit more about that.
In fact, that'll be one of the first foundations that we lay here. Genesis 1 gives us ultimate, answers ultimate questions for us. Questions that the secularist cannot come to an understanding. One, where did we come from? The secularist, where did we come from? Pond scum. Eventually apes. Where did we come from? Well, the Bible gives us the answer. Who are we? Again, the secularist doesn't know. The Bible tells us who we are, and we'll get into that in Genesis 1 in some detail. There's many others, but here are some of the big ones, the, the main ones. Why are we here? From the very beginning, we're going to find out the purpose of mankind, the purpose of all things, the purpose of humanity. Why are we here? Genesis 1. Ultimate questions will be answered. There's different approaches. Now, these different approaches in terms of primarily the church, primarily the body of Christ. Genesis, because it goes so contrary to so many of man's ideas that even believers have a hard time with Genesis. When I teach Genesis, the best approach that I give, I encourage, if it's to an, an adult class with or people with children, I basically say, take your 10-year-old, have him read it, have him explain to you the book of Genesis 1, and you'll have a better picture of the meaning of the text than you will if you go to somebody with a PhD. Genesis 1 is really simple, and we're going to go over it. We're going to give you the 10-year-old understanding of Genesis 1. But it'll be so profound that somebody with a PhD will not be able to refute it. Well, there's three different approaches that the church takes. One, it capitulates to the higher critics who are very critical of the book of Genesis. Liberalism has totally undermined not only Genesis 1, but basically all of the Bible. But it started with Genesis 1. And the church is intimidated in large measure in different varying degrees. So what happens is they have capitulated to science, for example, which is a huge mistake. So a lot of entire denominations have capitulated. A lot of individual Christians, some individual churches, have basically not tried to interpret Genesis in the way that we will interpret it. We are a very, very small minority, if you include the we, those of you here. The church likes to accommodate to science. This is also a mistake. In other words, they will read scientific theory and try to interpret Genesis 1 in light of scientific theory. But as scientific theory changes, then you have to change your interpretation of Genesis 1. This is attractive to even some more conservative believers. In fact, I go to a Bible church, and there are solid, biblically-based believers there that do a certain amount of accommodation. And we'll get into some of these issues later on. Uh, because they're, they, they're so convinced of some of these scientific theories. And I'm going to give you a better approach. The, the approach that we're going to take is we're going to counterattack and we're going to take the word and give it the priority, and we're going to interpret science from the biblical rather than interpret Genesis 1 from science. And that's a better approach. And it gives you more accurate results. 
We use apologetics. That's where apologetics will come in. And we'll begin with creation. Those are the approaches. So if you read books, you want to make sure that you understand the approach of the writer. And I'm going to even give you an example. Uh, probably not today. We'll have time. We'll get to it next session. So-called evangelical that tries to fit Genesis into current science. Okay. So our first major event is the creation event, and we'll progress on this timeline and fill out this timeline. This foundational events of world history. And we'll begin with Genesis chapter 1 that extends into chapter 2, verse 3. I title that the history of creation. We have the creation of the universe summarized in verse 1 of 1-1. And I think it's a summary statement that introduces us, gives us kind of the big picture, and then it goes into six days of creation, and there it is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is every much a scientific statement as anything you can find in a book of physics. It has time in the beginning. It has agency or an agent or an involvement of something, God. You have a process, creation. You have products of a process, heavens and earth. Scientific statement. One of the profoundest statements you'll encounter. You won't find it in a physics book, but that is every much a scientific statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning... Gives us the time frame, and I take it, that's the beginning of history. In the beginning of history. The Hebrew is Bereshit, and in the Hebrew we have the verb bara, and then we have Elohim, the subject of the sentence. So we're introduced to Elohim, translated God in the English Bible. The Hebrew letters Elohim, those of you that can read Hebrew. One of the things that you'll notice, if you know any Hebrew at all, when you have an im ending at the end of a, of a noun, an im ending at the end of a Hebrew noun is like an s ending in English. So you have a cup there, you only have one. If you had two, you would have an s behind it, cups. Well, yeah. If you want to mix Hebrew and, Hebrew and English, yeah. Cup-im would be a combination of, how would we call that? Spanish and English is Spanglish, so Hebrew and English would be... English. 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 <laughs> Elohim is a plural. So right off the bat, now I wouldn't say that Genesis 1-1 presents the Trinity... Because there's another hermeneutical principle called progress of revelation that you don't want to introduce thoughts elsewhere into the text here. But what it does do is it makes every allowance for a later full development of a concept of a God that is not just singular, a plurality idea relating to God, and ultimately when you get eventually the New Testament, a full-blown concept of the Trinity. Already you have the groundwork laid. So from the very beginning, the third word of the Hebrew text already tells us something about God, that he's at least a plurality, an interesting concept. 
But it also, even before you even look at the name, in the beginning, there's nothing. I mean, the text doesn't tell us that, but it's going to tell us what's going to come about after this God, this Elohim, begins to do something, begins to create. So this already is telling us that God is there. In the beginning, God, he's already there, which means that he is transcendent, or, that's a theological word, what we mean is that he is separate and apart from the creation, outside of the creation. So before there's a creation, God exists. You got that? This is where we get the concept that all non-biblical views does not see or, or have. All non-biblical views have a continuity of the gods and the creation. The Egyptian gods, the Nile was a god, it's part of the creation. Pharaoh was a god, he's part of the creation. Frogs were worshipped, cows were worshipped, part of the creation. And that's true of Babylonian gods, it's true of Roman, Greek gods. All non-biblical views, continuity of gods and the creation, it's only the biblical view that we have a creator distinct from the creation. So, before you even get into creation, already we have all these ideas about God. So he's the ultimate foundation of things. So, a God that is transcendent says that the creator is distinct from the creation. That's the meaning of transcendency. Transcendent God. That's not all. He's eternal. So there's a beginning. God's already there. God has no beginning. The creation has a beginning. God has no beginning. So he's eternal. And the rest of the Bible will tell us that God is everlasting, so he goes beyond the creation in eternity future. He's personal. We're going to see in Genesis 1, he interacts. He does things. He performs. He creates. He speaks. And when we get to chapter 2, he has relationship with man. He's personal. He's imminent. He gets his hands dirty. He forms man from the dust. He deals with the creation. That means he interacts with it. And again, when we get to man, he has relationship with man. So Genesis 1 is already laying a great foundation. The rest of the Bible will just expand upon these ideas. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God that is incomprehensible. And now God is revealing himself so that we might be able to know him. And we know him personally. He's preeminent. He's the main thing. If you look at the subject of every verb of Genesis 1, God is the subject. He's preeminent over the creation. He's Trinitarian. That's what I started off with, just from the name, Elohim. Now again, Genesis 1 doesn't expand upon that or doesn't develop that, but the rest of Scripture fills us in that God is Trinitarian. And we're going to see God working in a sovereign way, laying laying the foundation for the rest of what God is going to do throughout world history. He's gracious. He doesn't have to act. He didn't have to create. And after Genesis 3, we're going to see the expansion of the graciousness of God. He doesn't have to deal with man once man sins. Takes omnipotent power to create. These are just some. These are just some that you find in Genesis 1. He's good. What he creates is good. He evaluates the creation. It is good. Coming from the hand of a good God. Takes wisdom. He's a wise God. 
And later on we'll find out that he enters into covenant with a particular people. First with Noah and then with the nation of Israel. And this is just the beginning. This is the God of the Bible. This is the foundation that we start with. No big bang. Totally contrary. Secular thinking. No big bang. And what does verse 2 tell us? Somebody read verse 2. Read it loudly. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over. Where does he start? The creation. What's the... What's Okay, or in other words, earth is priority. Earth is priority. The earth. Now, the assumption from verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator, but he begins with the earth. The earth is a priority, and everything else is in relationship to the earth. And it says, without form, the earth was without form. So it didn't have a shape, it didn't have a distinct characteristic about it. It was just water, if you look at it closely. Probably water, is what it says here. It says, and, and the earth was formless and void. It, it didn't have things in it. Now, he's going to create in six days to give the earth form, the first three days. And then he's going to fill it with creatures, plant life, uh, beginning in third day and then the rest of the days. And he's going to fill the heavens with lights, heavenly bodies. But to begin with, the earth is formless and empty or void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep. The deep, that word is used for the depths of the deepest of oceans. So it's water. And the Spirit of God was was moving over the surface of the waters. So all you have is waters. And God is going to work. That's what your 10-year-old is going to tell you. When God begins, he begins with the earth, and it doesn't have a form, and it's empty, and it's dark. This is what your 10-year-old is going to tell you. This is what the text is telling us. And there's a spirit here which tells us what else. The spirit, it's not man, it's not a creature. It's implying that there is another aspect of this creator God that is involved here. The Spirit of God is involved. Ruach. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, the Hebrew word you have to say. Ruach. And it's Ruach Elohim <laughs> is here. Spirit of God was moving or adding energy is kind of the idea here. There's energy, and much of the universe is energy, so there's energy being poured or involved here over the surface of the waters. So earth is a priority. So we have a beginning here. Uh, These are the implications. And by the way, on your outline sheet, what I have is an outline of Genesis 1, and we're going to go through it. We won't complete that today. And on the second sheet are some of the major implications And the first one is the nature of God. So it starts off with giving us implications on the nature of God. And I've already gone over some of those, but you have them there. That's A. That's why on your outline sheet, A will correspond to the implications on the second sheet. You mean the A of divine? Right, in the margin there. Oh, Ah. Ah. 
So those are your implications on the second sheet. I thought I'd separate them out, otherwise it would it'd get too cluttered. So the nature of God. This is our foundation. This is our theological foundation. Everything starts with God. I'm going to use this slide to lay out foundations throughout the course. This is the first foundation stone, if you will, if, and we're going to deal with theology or the doctrine of God as a foundation and essentially what I've got on your outline sheet there. Not everything, but very important aspects. He's transcendent. He's not continuous. He's creator. He's not a force. He's not an energy. He's a creator. And that creator is transcendent and distinct from the creation. Thirdly, he's Trinitarian from the rest of Scripture. He's not solitary. Allah is what? Is one. Solitary. Distortion. And we'll talk throughout the course. We'll develop further the perfections of God. In other words, attributes, things that describe the nature of God, what he's like. And he's not finite. He, these perfections are infinite. All of the gods of mankind are finite gods because they're continuous with the creation. So we have verse 1, creation of the universe, six days. And let's get started with day 1, beginning in uh, the beginning of verse 3, day 1. And let me give you a summary of these days. They follow somewhat of a pattern. We have what I've described, first of all, revelation. And I summarize that, God said. In other words, God is speaking, God is revealing, we have revelation. God speaking. And then next, that's followed by the articulation of that revelation, or whatever that speaking is that God said. And in this case, let there be light. So God, uh, some theologians call that the, a divine fiat. What we mean by that is what God intends or what God uh, purposes to create. And on day one, let there be light. And that's followed by an accomplishment. In other words, a work that God does. And on day one, it's very simple and it's very short. And there was light. So God speaks light into existence. Accomplishment or fulfillment of the articulation, and it was so. And then verse 4, And God saw that the light was good. In this case, we have an evaluation. But before, let's stop and break this down a little bit further. We have revelation, God speaking. Okay, this revelation tells us God communicates right off the bat. We have God communicating. Secondly, we have the origin of language. I should have asked you that as a question. Where does language come from? Where does language come from in the secular mind? Evolution starts with grunts. Then we identify objects with certain grunts. We pass those grunts on to our children, and they grunt in the same way. So mean, meaning is associated with these grunts but it comes from man. Well, the Bible, the biblical view of language, language comes from God. It gives us the origin of language. Verse 3 starts off at least implying, if not overtly, giving us the origin of language. Now, 
That's not the emphasis of the verse, but it's a strong implication of the verse. The emphasis of the passage is the material creation. Now, language is outside of that. But Colossians tells us that God created both visible and invisible. This would be some of the invisible things that God created. And the origin of language has its origin in God. So there must be this intra-Trinitarian language. We get that from verse 26 when God says, Let us make man in our image. There seems to be a communication within the Trinity. And what we might call an intra-Trinitarian communication. Mars. God and Christ were always in union. I mean, I, I mean, he was in essence praying without ceasing. Yeah. There, Is that that? Yeah. That, that. Yes. There seems to be this, and it's. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and we see it elsewhere as well. But that's kind of the glaring passage here. Where there seems to be communication within the Godhead, but there's other passages as well. And that one that you're referring to may be another one of them. Yeah. Another thing to notice here is the power of his word, which has far-reaching implications in itself. The creation is the product of the spoken word of God. Your ten-year-old will tell you that God spoke things into existence. Power of his word. Which, when we speak of the written word, it has that same power. It has omnipotent power behind it. That's why it can change lives. The written word. It starts with the spoken word that speaks everything into existence. The means of creation is God said. So the means of creation, his word, spoken. Now, this is totally out of the realm of science. We don't see that process today. Psalm 33, 6-9, reinforces that. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath, now this is poetic, and by the breath of his mouth, so you, what kind of parallelism do we have here? And by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts, parallelism, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts, Mark. Line one, similar to line two, synonymous. Synonymous. Line one is similar to line two. For he spoke and it was done, he commanded and it stood fast. And everything in between supports that. So verse six through nine. His word is the means. He used wisdom. He uses omnipotent power to create. And this is just a verse on his omnipotence. It is he who made the earth by his power, omnipotence, who established the worlds by his wisdom, and by his understanding he has stretched out the heavens. Power, omnipotent power. The point being, nothing natural. Nothing natural. So you can't use science to reconstruct Genesis 1. You can't read modern theories of science to try to explain what's going on here. We have processes that we are totally unfamiliar with. We're dependent on the revelation that God has given us that he spoke these things into being. He also used wisdom. I didn't give you a verse for that, but there's a verse for that, and I gave you a couple of verses for his power. Nothing natural. And that's probably a good place to pick up 
next week. So we'll add to, to this deal with theology, revelation. God is a God that reveals. So let's close in the worth of prayer today. Okay, let's pray. Father, we praise you that, in fact, you are God. You are sovereign. You are the author of all things, and you are orchestrating events. It may not seem like it. It may seem like the world is only going downhill. It may seem scary. We may have to suffer. But we know that ultimately you have a plan in it all, and we also know that ultimately everything will be made right, that you are a just God and you have a perfect plan that you are orchestrating. We just can't see it all apart from our understanding of what you revealed. And we want in this course to be able to better understand what that plan is and also how we fit in. Pray these things, Jesus' name.